Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. another chapter from my book. This one is called Alec. My siblings, Duncan and Mandy, are both older than me and spent their early years doing correspondence school on the veranda of the farmhouse, taught by my mum. But by the age of six, they were sent off to Mvukwi's boarding school, some 26 miles away, which might as well have been a 1,000 miles away as far as I was concerned. This left me to fumble my own way through life back on the farm. My first attempts at correspondence school ended in a fiasco when I swallowed the tiny white Cuisinaire rod. These were the coloured woodblocks of varied sizes used to teach children numbers and sums. And without the small, white, number one, lessons soon ground to a halt. Now, by all accounts, I was rather an awful, feral child and often did my jobbies under the nearest shrub rather than going to the bathroom. My mum knew me well, and so after shadowing me all day like a marabou stalk, She finally pounced when I needed to do a poo under the guava tree. And with two sticks, picked the rather grisly offending article out of my turd. A bit like choosing a choice piece of veggie from a stir-fry. Like a, a diced brew noir piece of turnip in a French kitchen. Lessons were never the same after that, and an alternative plan was drastically required. I had to go to a real school, despite being only five. But Mbukwis wouldn't take on five-year-old feral children. I'd never worn shoes in my life, let alone learned to tie laces. I'd never made a bed nor slept a single night away from my mother. There was, however, another more pressing problem that was beginning to worry my parents. My one and only playmate was a black boy my own age, and unless nipped in the bud early, this might cause no end of trouble for them and for me, or so they believed. Rhodesia in 1967 was a segregated country and white people simply didn't mix with blacks. Countries to the north had already thrown off the shackles of colonialism and declared independence from Britain. 
This rather terrified the white community in southern Africa, and Rhodesia had chosen to take another path entirely by declaring UDI, or Unilateral Declaration of Independence, without a formal agreement with the UK. The last country to have had the nerve to do this was the United States in 1776. As a five-year-old kid alone on a 13,000-acre farm in the middle of white-ruled Africa, one whose life was completely bound by servants, nannies, a loving, if slightly flighty, hipsterish mother, and a stern father, I was, to say the least, lonely. My brother and sister away for weeks at boarding school meant I had no company other than my adoring nanny. But nanny had a plan. After lunch every day, my mum and dad had a kip. During these siestas, nanny would tie me up in a dook on her back and walk down to the compound. Something even today that suggests exciting and forbidden fruits. The compound. I was told never to go down there under any circumstances. This was where the servants lived. There were skellums like ringworm that could crawl into my skin, diseases, bad munts who might hurt me, filthy, overflowing PKs, PK being short for Pikininikaya or small house, which obviously meant a toilet. And of course, there were rabies from the dogs that skulked around the perimeter bushes eating shit. For the most part, this was just ridiculous propaganda. It was no wonder white kids grew up with a massive distrust of their black servants. And yet, despite all these obstacles, Nanny and I knew it was worth it. Because down in the compound, there was Alec. He was Fred and Nanny's firstborn son. Now, Fred was our cookboy and his wife was my nanny. And he was my first real friend. For an hour every afternoon, Alec and I would have the freedom of the compound and the surrounding bush. We would explore the balancing rocks, chase eccentric-looking blue-headed lizards across the yard, use a catapult to try to shoot down doves high up in the branches of the Mazunji trees, climb into the nearby caves to stare and wonder at the shapes and animals painted on the rock faces hundreds of years ago, quite possibly by Alec's early ancestors. There were kudu with curled horns, elephants, warthogs, crocodiles, fat-bellied men with bows and arrows, women with large protruding breasts. The intricate and beautifully rendered paintings fascinated us. Occasionally, 
We would even find a shard of pottery, which we always carefully placed back where we had found it, in case we upset the spirits of the long-dead San Bushmen. This was an education far better than anything Cuisinaire or Montessori could ever offer. And later, when the sun dipped slightly in the sky and the shadows began to lengthen across the cleanly swept yard, people would emerge from their mud huts to go back to work. Women would stir the pots of sudza on the embers of the fire built in front of the mud kayas, or put the tin pots on their heads and walk elegantly down to the nearby river to scrub the enamelware with sand to remove the remnants of the lunchtime meal. Men would roll up a piece of newspaper with tobacco scrap and squat down next to the fire or in the shade of their little stoop and have a smoke. The acrid blue tobacco smoke smelt so much more exotic than the shop-bought cigarettes the Europeans smoked. Nanny or one of the other women, often with a wailing baby on their back, would roll up a small piece of sudza in their hand and feed it to me, occasionally with the delicious green relish they made from wild vegetables and blue-green rape. Dust streaked our faces, blackjacks and wait-a-bit thorns stuck to our clothes and hair. Dry mud caked between our toes. And then the highlight of the day would begin. Nanny would take an old zinc tub, place it on a concrete slab that served as a bathroom, the only privacy being the flimsy grass fence. She would fill the tub with warm water, strip the two of us kids, and in we would jump, splashing and cavorting in the deliciously warm water. Nothing in our own avocado green bathroom could ever compare to these afternoon washers in the compound shaded by the mufuti and the mountain acacia trees and surrounded by the life of the village. African women have a remarkably tender yet rough way of dealing with children. They might firmly hold you up, dangling like a monkey by your arm while they lathered your legs and tummy using the huge green bars of soap available in roadside stores. Alec hated this and he would scream, wriggle and wail. But for me, it was bliss. Perhaps I knew deep down that being the child of the Nkosi, any kind of bawling or screaming would have major repercussions. Certainly it would have made the other people in the compound very uncomfortable having the Pikinin Boana crying. After all, they were the servants and they all knew my presence in the compound would bring down the wrath of my father. Eventually the daily sojourn would come to an end at the sound of the gong being struck, either Fred or Conda banging a metal simbi against an old plough disc up on the hill outside the kitchen. This acted as an alarm clock and could be heard for miles around, 
alerting all the farm workers that siesta was over and it was time to get back to the fields and workshops. It also marked the time for me to sneak back up the hill in time for milky tea on the veranda with my mum and dad and the world's thinnest cucumber sandwiches. I often wonder if they ever noticed my squeaky clean shiny pink skin fresh from being scrubbed raw by nanny. Only Conda serving the tea would have a twinkle in his eye. For the most part, my parents were clueless about this, despite on occasion seeing me playing with Alec at the back of the house where the servants hung out. It might have worried them had they known how often this happened. It was time I made proper friends with white kids from the district. So a plan was set in motion that would change everything. As with the young calves down in the paddock, this was a time of weaning. One day early in January, shortly after Duncan Mandy had gone back to school, Mum popped me in the old Rambler car and drove off towards Raffangora, some 20 miles away along rocky and corrugated iron dirt roads. Where are we going, Mum? I asked excitedly. Oh, we're off to see Norma and Lofty Standage and Gillian. You remember Gillian, don't you? She's your age. She's someone you can play with. I felt excited to see Gillian, although I did not remember having met her before. It was rare to see other white kids. Our neighbours, the Harringtons, they had children my age, but I didn't see them often enough. And getting around wasn't easy like it is today. Norma and Lofty were also farmers, living near the village of Raffangora. A few weeks previously, their home on the hill had spectacularly burnt to the ground after a lightning strike. Nothing remained of the old thatched farmhouse except the corrugated iron kitchen, which, like so many farmhouses, was built apart from the main house, not for practical purposes, but to keep the cook out of your hair. To my astonishment, the old house was literally a charred pile of ash, still slightly smoking. The odd whitewashed wall from one of the rooms still stood crumbling and now blackened with soot. A hundred yards away, nestled under a mountain acacia, stood a single white thatched rondavel. This was where Granny Standage lived. Mum and I, led by Lofty, Norma and Gillian, all piled into the small cramped rondavel for tea and the most delicious homemade date cake I've ever tasted. Thank goodness the kitchen still stood, I thought. Gillian and I chatted and played while the adults looked over at us with more interest than we rarely deserved. And then Gillian took me down a rocky pathway 
dotted with mauve aloes and Christthorn to the red brick tobacco sheds and barns. This is where we live now, she gestured, showing me into a gloomy, windowless interior with four old brass beds separated only by flimsy curtains. It's all we could get out of the house before it burnt down, she explained. The place smelt pungently of tobacco scrap. A nail was hammered into the wall next to each bed, where a sponge bag hung rather incongruously. My curiosity getting the better of me, I asked where they washed and bathed. Oh, we managed to pull the old bathtub down the hill and we've made a wash area outside on a piece of flat concrete. I hate it. It's like, well, it's like the Muntus have. I wanted to tell her that I loved washing in a tub outdoors, but explaining this would require giving up too many secrets, and I knew Alec would be furious. I heard the car starting up near the rondavel. I have to go, I shouted to Gillian and ran outside. But already the car was a hundred or so yards down the hill, dust gathering in its wake. I ran after it, shouting for my mum to stop. But the vehicle just kept going. On and on I ran, tears streaking down my now dusty face. How could she? How could she just forget me? Mum, don't leave me, come back, I shouted one last time as the car finally turned the bend and disappeared from sight. Slowly the dust settled and I stared at the empty road, willing the car to turn around and come back for me. Pete said a kind voice behind me. It was Norma. Didn't your mum tell you? You're staying with us now. You have to start going to school in Rafangora with Gillian and the other white kids. You're a big boy now. Don't worry. You'll love it. So many people to play with and so many adventures. But I already had people to play with, I thought. I already had adventures. And I had Alec. I'd never been away from my mum and I simply didn't understand. Mandy and Duncan never had to do this. They went to a proper school. They didn't have to sleep in a barn surrounded by strange people. They didn't have to eat in a rondavel cluttered with a piano, piles of furniture and an old woman with white hair. Why me? To my little mind, this was treachery. And that first day at school, I decided to cry nonstop all day. Even 40 years later, I loathe and detest the story of Peter Rabbit. I blamed the end of my baby days on Beatrix Potter and that spiteful rabbit. I wasn't to know that Mum had left without saying goodbye because she didn't want me to see the tears rolling down her cheeks. Routine and distance blurred the boundaries, I suppose, and I began to have fun. I loved my teacher Lorraine and I learnt that I had a talent. I could draw well. Also, on the plus side, I adored Gillian. 
Norma and Granny Standage taught us about food. There were cakes, scones, flapjacks, and we were always allowed to lick the bowl. Beautiful aromas constantly wafted from that tiny tin kitchen. My own mum rarely cooked and never baked cakes. Lofty slowly became like a surrogate father, and living in a barn taught me for the first time that to be different was not necessarily a bad thing. Life, once again, was an adventure. The folks from Rafangora were different to those in Umbukwes. The Raf crowd were not quite so snooty. They were more artistic and liberal-minded and not so set in their ways. I wasn't too surprised to learn later in life that this was where writer Doris Lessing spent many years living in a simple thatched house overlooking the beautiful Ayrshire Hills. <laughs> Although perhaps this was not quite as happy as one might imagine. She did abandon her husband and kids, all in the name of art. Some of her greatest collected works, such as This Was the Old Chief's Country and The Sun Between Their Feet, were written just up the road. Many whites across the country naturally felt that Lessing was a typical liberal sellout. Some were simply disappointed that she left her poor children behind. The Rafangora crowd felt otherwise. Her short story, called Old John's Place, tells of farmers in Rafangora as people of the district, mostly solidly established farmers who intended to live and die on their land. She foretold a time when Africa would take back what belonged to it. In her own words, Africa gives you the knowledge that man is a small creature, among other creatures, in a large landscape. Gosh, how fitting. At first I was a weekday boarder. Back at home on Saturday afternoons, I would still sneak down to the compound to play with Alec. But something intangible had changed and would stay changed forever. That age of innocence was gone. As I met other kids my own age and skin colour, as I began to learn drawing, sums and crafts, I started to see a world outside the confines of the farm, and my feelings for Alec shifted. Alec saw this too, and he slowly began drawing further and further away. Nanny stopped wrapping me in her duck and taking me down to the compound. Besides, she said, you're getting too mukulu, mukulu being too big. Within a year, I would not even look at Alec. I seemed hardly to notice him when we drove past the compound in the back of the Land Rover, laughing with my brother and sister and maybe one or two of my newfound friends. 
Occasionally, I would glance at Alec among a group of other African kids as we drove by. I rarely acknowledged his wave or his smile. All he got was the dust from the vehicle and a, and a bitching from one of the Madala women for nearly getting run over. No longer would cast-off clothes be delivered to the hut, warm from the iron and smelling of Omo washing powder. Sometimes there would be food. After all, Fred was the cook boy. But a distance had developed between the two of us boys. When I naively asked Nanny why Alec never came up to the back of the house to play, she gently explained, It's not good, picking in, boss. You are a man now, and you must not play with the African kids. The Nkosi will get angry and fire me. She was kind, but firm. Our friendship was finished. Sunday afternoons were hell. While I screamed and fought as mum carried me squirming to the car to take me back to the standages, Alec would pick up his textbooks and walk the five miles across the bush to the small school on the neighbouring farm. He was a clever kid and learned well, well, according to his parents. At first, I took an interest in his education. I was surprised at how clever he was. Better than me. Alec's formal education ended when he was ten years old. Deep down, I knew this was the order of things. This was what was expected. This was my new life now. Slowly but inevitably, Alec drew further and further away until one day he disappeared from my life altogether. My very first friend. A boy I'd played with and shared dreams and aspirations with laughed at the sounds of the go-away bird, burned our bare feet on the flat rock as we chased geckos and cried as the soap suds stung our eyes when Nanny washed us. Yet my early days were always quite different from those of Alec. Even when our friendship was at its zenith, my life was always different to his. At the sound of the gong, I would be whisked back up to the sanctuary of the big house, the plush Axminster carpets, the cool slate verandas, the soft sprung beds and silky cotton sheets, back to the framed prints of Dagar and Pizarro, the delicate wedgewood porcelain figurines on the mantelpiece and the routine of family life in a middle-class colonial home. Alec went back to the hut he shared with his father, mother and siblings. He was sent to fetch wood for the fire or water for the sudza. Gosh, there were many chores to do before bedtime. Years later, during the Liberation War, Alec became an active Mujiba, 
These were teenage boys who acted as runners and messengers for the guerrillas. Majiba was so endemic in the war that it's arguable they played a major part in the victory for Mugabe. When home for the holidays, I would hear snippets of conversation about Alec. How he had turned feral, how he had gone against his parents' wishes. On hearing about Alec's fall from grace, I was furious, also a little scared. It came as a shock to me when I found out that he was quite likely a Majiba. We often spoke about these go-betweens and how we were surprised at their bravery, their unbending faith in the freedom fighters and their knowledge that the police or army would rarely torture children. After all, to the Murungu, they were just bloody pickaninnies running around having fun. Do you know, my mum often said during the war, if I were black, I would be a Majiba. Jesus, mum, they're no better than bloody terrorists. How can you even think like that, we would chorus. This kind of talk genuinely scared us. Yes, I realised that, she would say with a dramatic shrug and roll of the eyes. But look what they have. They have nothing. Can you just imagine if you lived the life they live, down there in the compound and the heat and the dust and the flies? Well, I don't know about you, but as far as me, I would want to strive to get more. Naively, she would react with horror. If we asked her if she were black, would she become a terrorist? God, no! They're nothing more than murderers. How can you say such a thing? Mujiba seemed less evil than terrorists, less dangerous, more benign, and perhaps slightly romantic. They had a dream of freedom and one man, one vote, but they were underage and bore no arms and therefore escaped the same fate as the adult freedom fighters. It's notable that many Majiba were fairly well educated, at least up to grade four. They wanted more than their parents and even grew to despise their elders. Alec, thanks to my friendship, I think, and his intimate knowledge of life in the big house up on the hill, was almost certainly to blame for the theft of several elephant tusks, among other things, priceless only to us and quite valueless elsewhere. I often wonder what he did with them. My father, in a fury, banished Alec from the farm like a feudal landlord. It was never proven that Alec was the, the thief but only he knew the ins and outs of our house. Never trusted that little shit, my father would say. Like a coward, I hid in my father's shadow, trying to forget that Alec and I had been best friends. Alec returned to the farm occasionally, furtively. Once during the height of the war, it was believed he was responsible for luring our dogs away and locking them up so that they wouldn't bark 
when a group of terrorists, led by a terrible man named Mao, wanted to attack our house. Our dogs only trusted family, and Alec was most certainly a family member. On this occasion, the guerrillas preferred to remain incognito, and the dogs returned one day, well-fed and tails wagging. That Alec might have been instrumental in our deaths was uncomfortable to say the least, particularly for his father Fred. The second time that Alec returned to the farm was at the end, in those awful last few weeks of 2001, when my parents were being thrown off the farm. Alec most certainly led the troop who sat outside my parents' bedroom window, night after night, slowly drumming on the tom-toms, like a scene from Zulu Dawn, tormenting, torturing, tap, tap, tapping, night after night, right outside their bedroom window. By then, Alec was a leader, and he hated us all with a passion quite horrifying to us at the time. All his life, his parents had given themselves to us, to this one family. Yet Alec had nothing, oh, perhaps the odd cast-off item of clothing. And then the final insult to be banished from the farm, the farm he grew up on, the very place where his mother and father served as cook and nanny to the white people in the big house on the hill. Naturally, he was bitter and wanted revenge. So bitter, he never even came to his father's funeral as he regarded Fred as a sellout. It was very communist. It was very Mao Zedong's China, getting children to turn against their parents and getting my parents thrown off their land must have been sweet revenge. For a brief period, Alec must have felt he was at long last the winner. But typical squabbling and greed soon laid waste to all of that. Like a recurring nightmare, Alec ended up with nothing. Within months of my parents leaving Masitui, the graves of the dogs still fresh in the ground. All the money had gone. The country had crashed and burned, the currency valueless, and the big house on the hill began to crumble. The sparkling blue swimming pool became a dark, viscous pond of rotting vegetation, frog spawn, and dead bugs. The lawns and gardens were overtaken by weeds and creepers and nettles and snakes. The shade trees, ancient jacarandas, parkinsonia and flamboyance were felled for firewood. Not for the first time, poor Alec became a shadow and drifted away. Some say he went slightly mad. There was nothing left to keep him there. Perhaps that was his final prize, 
his last vindictive act of vengeance, everything my father had, had now reverted back to the bush. The white colonial masters banished, just like Alec, to wander aimlessly for the rest of their days. But return he did many years later, this time to my brother's farm. He came armed with a head full of demons and a body ravaged by poverty. With an axe, he hacked up one of my brother's cows. What he hoped to achieve is anyone's guess. But taking pity on him, Duncan allowed him to stay on the farm in a small hut at the end of the compound. Alone, like so often in his past, many of the farm workers remembered Alec from their own childhood and kept clear of him, avoiding those sunken, angry eyes, the hollow cheeks, and his ranting, tortured mind. Alec Chimbata died of a stroke on the 23rd of July, 2014. He was 52, and it was my birthday. He was buried on the farm quietly and without ceremony. Fate deals many cards, and Alec, that funny, gifted child who was my first friend, was dealt a rotten hand. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye. <laughs>